Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Rising Fridays. We've got another great show in store for everyone today. Ryan, you're apparently still in Vermont. How is, uh, how's everything up there? <laughs> I mean, well, not only is the weather lovely up here, but a Bernie-backed state senator from the area that I'm in won the House race this last Tuesday, so you're going to have a uh, a Southern Vermonter, a Brattleboro uh, resident, headed to headed to to join the squad in Washington D.C. Unless actually they get beaten by the Republican, we can talk about this later. But a like super left wing guy ran as an anti war candidate in the Republican primary and said, uh, just to be clear, I am not a Republican, but I'm running in the Republican primary, and he won the primary. There were it was something there was some hilarious number of votes. I think twenty thousand. People came out to vote in the Republican primary here in Vermont for House, but he won it. Uh, so this means the kind of squad aligned candidate will be the most right wing one in the, <laughs> in, in the general election here in Vermont, which I'm looking forward to. That's Vermont for you. <laughs> it sounds exactly you like you'd expect of an election in 2022 Vermont. <laughs> yep. and, and we as Becca Ballant, we had her on the show uh, a couple months ago, if you remember. Nice, nice case of kind of left wing consolidation where she, you know, her opponent dropped out so that she, it, could just, it was just her against a corporate backed Democratic candidate, and, and Bernie came through. So that's a, it's an easy choice for Vermonters. Vermont. It's you, you would think, although you know the corporate candidate had the backing of Pat Leahy, and Leahy has a powerful machine here, uh, but the Sanders endorsement just you know led to a romp. It was it wasn't even close. And she's well, a lieutenant governor that got that got destroyed in the, in the no, primary. It's interesting, and uh, I think another part of a larger plot that we talk about a lot, which is the the sort of realigning of different interests that go on. And and she's such an interesting candidate. If if folks haven't seen that interview, um, they can go look it up on on the channel. It is a really interesting one. And speaking of that, um, this this is kind of part of uh, something we're about to talk about when you, you think of all of the uh, Republican all the Republicans in general who uh, have come out against the FBI after probably years and years of reflexive trust of the <laughs> intelligence community and the, the FBI. Um, and we're going to get into right now breaking down, uh, you know, the last several days of news about the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago. So according to the Washington Post, this is a report from last night, classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the list of items being sought after in the FBI's search, Attorney General Merrick Garland now wants to make the search warrant public. Donald Trump said last night he welcomes that as well. Here's some of what Garland said yesterday in his address to the public. Since I became Attorney General, I have made clear that the Department of Justice will speak through its court filings and its work. Just now, the Justice Department has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal a search warrant and property receipt relating to a court-approved search that the FBI conducted earlier this week. That search was of premises located in Florida belonging to the former president. Well, there you go. Uh, Emily, what, so ha has your thinking evolved on on the, the kind of uh, the either the legality or the justification of this raid since it has uh, since it has come out? Where, where are you at now? Well, I'm reflexively distrustful of the FBI in this era. Um, and so while it's entirely possible that Donald Trump violated the Presidential Records Act, 
um, I, I think this battle of uh, anonymous sources that we're locked in once again, it feels like we're in the heat of the Russia collusion narrative one more time. I feel, I feel like I'm back in 2017, and you have these warring anonymous intelligence community leaks in the New York Times and the Washington Post that could mean something absolutely massive, and they're teased that way, um, or they could be wildly, like, intentionally vague when you're talking about nuclear documents. It could be anything that mentions nuclear weapons, according to the Washington Post reporting. It could be something extremely important, or it could be absolutely nothing. Um, and I'm not inclined to trust anonymous sources shopping their intelligence around with no nothing other than their name uh, to, to the reporter to go off of, and they won't even be public about who they are. Um, so I'm not inclined to, to take that especially seriously. I, I don't think you know it's a, a good decision to jump to conclusions on either side, but I think it's probably uh, you know a pretty a pretty good position at this point to be reflexively skeptical of the politicized FBI um, as it is right now. And that's totally where I stand on this. Um, I'm, I'm probably too young to be uh, in, a, in a place where I could even be hypocritical. I was, I was too young during the, the Bush years and uh, even some of the Obama years to have a, a you know, strong stance on the intelligence community. Um, I was mostly in college, so I, I, I don't know where I would have landed. Uh, in those years, I think hopefully I probably would have been on the sort of Rand Paul side of, of that conversation. But what do you think, Ryan, after all of this? Uh, does the FBI deserve the benefit of the doubt here when we still don't really know clearly um, what, was, what was going on? I don't think they deserve the benefit of the doubt. But I, at the same time, we don't want to necessarily, as pundits, kind of embarrass ourselves by you know, making pronouncements, like you said, it, it really does depend what was in there. If it's just a letter, uh, you know, from, let's say, Kim Jong-un to Trump, and he's taking the letter with him, the kind of thing that a president would do to write his memoirs, although the idea of Donald Trump sitting down and writing a memoir is kind of, a, is kind of funny, although if he dictated one, I would, I would definitely read it. Uh, and, or maybe we could have Robbie, like, read it in his Trump voice out loud to us. Uh, but if it's a letter from Kim Jong-un that mentions nuclear weapons, that's, that's not very impressive, and then it, it wouldn't feel justified. If, if there are actual genuine nuclear secrets in there, particularly given his relationship with the Saudis and others, then you're like, okay, th now, th this, now this is serious. But we don't we don't know. And we also know that the FBI and, and the Department of Justice generally is kind of pattern uh, as it relates to defendants is to treat them in general kind of with with contempt and with arrogance. That is that's just generally how prosecutors across the board you know, treat defendants. And George Will, of all people, actually made an interesting point in a in a recent column where he said, uh, Merrick Garland has said that he has, doesn't have a political bone in his body. He might be right, and that might be a big problem. When you, when you are investigating or prosecuting a former president, you can't be, pretend that politics are not coming into play. And so you, ha you have to take into account the, the politics and the optics of a situation. And so while it might be okay kind of to raid a normal defendant, over you know failing to turn over some uh, you know some minor uh, some minor let's say classified documents that they took from their time in the White House if they're a White House staff or something if this is a former president of the United States 
you have to weigh the politics of it also. And you have to say, what is what is the level of these documents? Now, now Trump has responded, as you would expect Trump to respond with a bunch of whataboutism on, on Truth Social. What did he say? He said, uh, I continue to ask, uh, what happened to the 33 million pages of documents taken to Chicago by President Obama? The fake news media refuses to talk about that. They want it canceled. I don't quite get his use of the word canceled there, uh, but A for A for effort, I guess. Uh, New York Times Maggie ha- Haberman tweeted, there was said to have been a subpoena that preceded the June meeting with Trump lawyers and the head of a counterintelligence unit, suggesting there were efforts to get the documents prior to the search of Trump's home. <laughs> and Rudy Giuliani has weighed in saying that, uh, you know, there'll be really fire and brimstone if Trump wins in 2024 in, in retribution uh, for this. Right. Um, and again, it, the, the whataboutism thing is interesting because I almost I don't necessarily agree that it's whataboutism because I think he's trying to make a point about the politics of it, exactly as you were just saying, Ryan, that this is something the FBI, like the, the precedent for somebody violating the Presidential Records Act um, is it, it's not it doesn't look like what we suspect happened or what it appears to have happened this week at Mar-a-Lago. And that's not to say, again, I absolutely don't think that Donald Trump would, I, 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 it's completely plausible to me that Donald Trump would have taken uh, information before technically declassifying it as presidents can do. Um, that's entirely plausible to me. I don't doubt it. I'm sure that other presidents have done it. Um, and I'm, I would have no problem believing that he did that as well. Um, but whether or not you actually go in and, and raid a former president's uh, home is a different question. And the politicization of the FBI after you have um, Peter Strzok and you have Lisa Page and you have all of this uncovered information where we found out that the anti-Trump sentiments, it's not partisan, right? Like it's not partisan anti-Republican. It is specifically um, what we've seen from the FBI, anti-Trump. Um, the dossier, I mean, we could get into all of this. It was all specifically aimed at Donald Trump and finding a way. I'm curious if, if you see this too, because from my perspective, it's always been about finding a way to disqualify him. So like during the primary, this guy has to have something in his background that can disqualify him from being president. He has to have something that can disqualify him from running for president again. It's this noble quest they're on to disqualify Donald Trump from president of the United States because they, unelected people, think they know better than voters. Um, and, and again, it seems to me like we're on another fishing expedition where they think they know better and they think they can find that one scrap of evidence that's going to make it so you can have, you know, Ron DeSantis run against Joe Biden, or you can have some sort of John Kasich moment against Joe Biden, whatever <laughs> it is, but anybody but Donald Trump. And finally, they will rid America, the scourge of Donald Trump. They think that they can do that. Um, and to me, this seems like it's, it's likely another part of that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? Well, I, it's interesting how I think the left and right can look at this same thing and see completely different things in the FBI, like where where you see kind of cr- people who are on a, a, a noble crusade or what they consider to be a noble crusade, you know, kind of an out, out of out of control, reckless pursuit of the president. Uh, I actually see, you know, complete fecklessness and cowardice on the part of the FBI that that if the FBI was serious, they, you know, the January 6th committee has laid out all sorts of uh, breadcrumbs that would get them to a prosecution of a crime of trying to overthrow 
the election like that like that to me is what a courageous you know a law enforcement body would do say look you tried to coup our government you failed uh we're going to make sure that this doesn't happen again instead they're going after some potentially some ticky tack paperwork stuff you know if it's if it's if there are major classified documents in there uh that you know that we learn about then that that changes the question but it, it certainly appears that there could be an irony here that you know if they if they went kind of quote unquote by the book uh and just you know ha, you know launched a launched a raid based on a national records act violation uh they're they're going to end up looking more political and it's going to backfire on them than if they had actually done the more difficult thing which is just lay their cards on the table and say we Donald Trump tried to overturn an election illegally we're going to we're going to make a case in front of a jury uh that he that he tried to do that and but let, let you know let's go back to the FBI again um so uh we have a mashup here that uh viewer viewer of ours halal flow uh at halal flow on twitter uh made made for us of the uh of basically republicans and 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 fox news and other conservative media insisting that well we don't necessarily need to wait to see what the FBI produces because whatever the FBI produced is probably fake and was planted. So let's, let's see if we can roll that. I'm concerned that they may have planted something. You know, at this point, who knows? I don't trust the government. And that's a very frightening thing as an American. If I didn't want to be an American and go to another, this is third world stuff. We've heard it. This is Cuba. This is, this is not our country. A tyrannical, anti-conservative, anti-Republican, constant violation of the law, which is what the January 6th committee is. You have a fake committee being covered by the fake news with a fake FBI, uh, which, by the way, you'll notice they didn't allow anybody on the Trump side into Mar-a-Lago. So we have no idea whether or not they planted evidence. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and Newt, I have a couple of thoughts. Number one, I wish I trusted our law enforcement. You need some <clears throat> form of law enforcement to have a civil society. But I'm right with you. I say, oh, they're planting evidence. How how? How disappointing of a place we are in our country where our immediate reaction is that our own law enforcement agency might be planning evidence against a former president. How horrible is that? They could have easily negotiated the return of documents like that without guns and warrants. What the FBI is probably doing is planning evidence, which is what they did during the Russia hoax. We also have a hunch they doctored evidence to get the warrant. And, and his lawyers said they brought in backpacks. What, what was in those backpacks? Was, did they bring those in to fill them up, or did they have something in there? I don't understand why people aren't lighting their hair on fire. I don't understand why people aren't well, out what, in the streets. Yeah. This isn't like, oh, well, you know, let's just see what's yeah. in the warrant. I mean, they've been doing this. This is yeah. the third election. This is the third election. We know they well, doctor Jesse, evidence. We know they yeah. plant evidence. Yeah. You know, th there's an interesting point to be made about how they lacked zero credibility after the dossier situation that it, it leads to this. Um, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about this in my radar. But it, it's interesting, Ryan, because to your point, um, it seems to me like that came out on the transom in sort of Trump world, this idea, this possibility that something was planted. And I'm putting nothing past the FBI at this point, although I, I have no evidence to suggest they planted anything, certainly, um, and will t time will tell. But it seems like that's a, a talking point that was sort of uh, put out for folks to pick up on, and they did. And it's interesting hearing it come from a former Trump attorney um, on Fox News. It seems like Trump world kind of got the, the memo on that. And 
in Trump's statement last night saying he welcomes the warrant, uh, the, the release of the warrant. He says even though you know it was written by people who you know have this like strong anti-Trump idea. And to me, again, we might learn more about this by the time this video goes to air. We might learn more about this today. But it sounds to me like he's trying to prime people for something that does indeed uh, look very bad. And whether it actually is bad is a different question. Um, but yeah. it does seem to me like he's prepping that. And one more point on January 6th, Ryan, because to your, your point about fecklessness in the FBI, Andy McCarthy and uh, I think Jonathan Turley both had columns this week where they talked about the probability or the possibility that this entire raid was about January 6th, that the Presidential Records Act was the way they could get a warrant. And in the same way, cops will get a warrant to search a house for uh, paraphernalia, knowing that there will be evidence of a bigger crime. Um, this was something to, to sort of snatch up some documents that could be evidence of uh, something that they could charge Donald Trump with related to January 6th. And so to me, it's still, it still seems that it's, it's possible that actually what they're doing is, is not feckless. It's indeed right. sort of dishonest um, and at, dishonest at best. I'll leave it at that. Right. We'll see. We'll see if this was a pretext you know, for some type of search that actually involved uh, January 6th and whether they can produce something around that or not. One thing that did uh, make me start to question my kind of baseline lack of trust in the FBI and wonder, oh, actually, is, did, they, did they get something pretty explosive in these, in these boxes? What is actually this talking point that's coming from Trump world? If, <laughs> if Trump world knows that there's nothing but like schedules and lunch menus in these boxes, then they wouldn't actually be out there saying that the FBI uh, planted something. Because come on, that, that's silly. Like the that, like the FBI, with regard to Trump, uh, you know, there's plenty to criticize them, but they're not plant, they're not going to plant evidence. And Jesse Waters going on and on and on about planting evidence is just that's that's a reference to his complete and utter you know misunderstanding of of, of an or of an earlier you know kind of unsealed. Uh, search warrant from the, from the what was the guy's name the uh, Christopher Steele, not Christopher Steele the uh, the Durham uh, from John Durham. Oh, I see what you're he, saying. He completely he completely misread this this filing from Durham. Went out and said, look, uh, they they planted evidence on uh, on these servers and then and then fed it to the FBI. And Durham had to do a separate filing saying it's not our fault if the if the media misunderstood what what we had said. So that's what that's in reference to, uh, but. Uh, where have you know so that that's what gives me some sense that maybe there actually is something big in here and that the trump administration is trying to you know prepare people for it that when this when when it does emerge like this is what was in here they're like well it wasn't in there they, act, they actually planted there but it, it is wild that finally uh you're seeing conservatives come around to some idea that uh the fbi can't necessarily be trusted you know they weren't there you know when the fbi was you know, going through its McCarthyist, uh, you know, rounding up of communists. They weren't there when it was doing COINTELPRO. They weren't there when it was assassinating uh, Fred Hampton or, or trying to pressure Martin Luther King into, into committing suicide. There's all things that we have known for decades uh, at, at this point. They weren't there, you know, when they were, uh, you know, set, setting up mentally ill Islamic people as, as terrorists by, by kind of, you know, begging them to just please say yes uh, to to involving being involved in some conspiracy and then and then hold, holding some big, you know, press conference that they had you know that they had foiled some major terrorist attack. Like there there has been evidence that the FBI can't cannot be uh, cannot be trusted at first blush for since the beginning of the FBI. Uh, it is interesting that all of a sudden um, like 
there'd be planting evidence. Oh, there, you think that they could plant evidence? And for generations, you've been the most vocal supporters of this institution that you now are telling us you're convinced is planting evidence on the president of the United States? Well, that kind of calls into question your, your, your previous judgment and your current judgment. I think it really, it's a statement on the dissolution of neoconservative control over the Republican Party, honestly, um, that people feel comfortable like really looking at this as it is. And in the same way, I would I would say a lot of the left, like, where were you on all of these cultural issues? Now you're like upset about it and welcome. Um, it, it can only be a good thing, Ryan, uh, that there, there are more, I think, people in the country, whether they're conservative, independent, or liberal, who look at these institutions for, with the lack of credibility that they have duly earned, um, this, this entirely appropriate uh, lack of credibility uh, where they belong, because that's really the only way that there's an appetite uh, for things to, to get fixed, frankly. And I, and I know you've got another angle on this. Uh, looking forward to that coming up in your, in your radar in just a minute. Stick around, everybody, for that. Ryan, what is on your radar this morning? Well, after the Senate passed its recent bill that is aimed at cutting drug prices, which will be uh, which will move through the House later this afternoon, the lobby for Big Pharma denounced it, warning that, quote, sweeping government price setting policies will threaten patient access and future innovations. Now, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, which is another major lobby for some of the priciest drugs, promised the bill would send us, quote, back into the dark ages of biomedical research, unquote. So whenever rapacious monopolies like this are furious about new legislation, that's usually a good sign that something good may have just happened. And in this case, yes, Medicare will now be allowed to negotiate prices of some drugs with pharmaceutical companies, which will certainly save seniors and the government money. It caps out-of-pocket drug costs for Medicare beneficiaries at $2,000 a year, though not starting till 2025. And this counts for sure as the first significant defeat for big pharma basically ever. But Democrats failed to completely finish the job, and a lot of people may be, may be in for a rude surprise when this legislation starts taking effect. Now, that's because the parliamentarian ruled that the bill couldn't extend rebates and other price control measures outside of Medicare into the private market. Now, she didn't actually issue a, quote, ruling because she's only a staffer who offers advice to the Senate, but Senate Democrats treated it as a ruling. That meant that the Senate needed 60 votes to overturn her opinion, and only seven Republicans sided with them, leaving them three votes short. So Democrats did have another option. Vice President Kamala Harris, or whoever was presiding over the Senate, could listen to the parliamentarian's advice and then make her own ruling. And that ought to be the role of the parliamentarian. She gets asked her expert opinion on parliamentary procedure, offers the history and the context and the background, she can even make a recommendation, but then she lets the elected representatives of the people make the final decision democratically. Now, if voters learned that Democrats broke with the parliamentarian, they can take it out on Democrats in the next election. That's why they're up for election and the parliamentarian isn't. Now, we didn't design our government to let a random Senate staffer set policy for millions of people unilaterally. Now, Meryl Guzner, one of the top healthcare reporters out there, highlighted the consequences of this move for patients. He writes, but by refusing to overturn the parliamentarian's ruling that the bill couldn't extend drug price controls to the private market, which covers workers and their families under age 65, the Senate allowed drug makers to shift costs. 
when government programs pay less, the private market pays more, often a lot more. Quote, since the measure will, will now apply to Medicare only, the legislation would actually increase prices for those with commercial coverage, unquote, a coalition of employer-sponsored plans said shortly after the Senate vote. This would be, quote, above the unsustainably high prices they're already paying as costs are shifted from Medicare to employer plans. So the public has been promised lower drug prices and lots of people are going to see their employer-sponsored plans go up in price. And you can bet that lots of employers will let their workers know that the reason they're going up is this democratic legislation. Now, the reflexive move has been to say that Schumer should have simply fired the parliamentarian, and we can get into that in a minute, and how it wasn't realistic to do it in the midst of passing the bill. The better move would have been to ignore her, but either way, it's over now, and the question is what to do next. Democrats are expected to pass the reconciliation bill later today. Now, if I were Schumer, I'd call the parliamentarian in at five o'clock this evening and let her know that she's done. She can either resign or be fired. Then in the fall, Democrats can come back with a new reconciliation bill that fixes this and the insulin thing that she knocked out of the bill. And it also could address whatever additional mistakes are discovered in the next few weeks. And so, Emily, because Schumer started his term with an impeachment trial, which the parliamentarian oversaw and won a lot of praise internally for how she handled it, he didn't really have a chance to fire her right away like he should have. Then there was the American Rescue Plan that came in February and March, where Senate Democrats started to tangle with the parliamentarian over the minimum wage and, and other issues, at which point Schumer's kind of hands were tied a little bit because if he fires her, then Manchin says, you cannot fire her because I'm walking away from here. You also have Pat Leahy at the time, Senate in pro tem. He's been in the office since 1974. He's the biggest protector of uh, of Elizabeth McDonough, who is the parliamentarian from the University of uh, Vermont Law from Vermont Law from a law school in Vermont. So he has a he has a particular kind of affection and connection to the parliamentarian. He was her kind of patron and guarantor. You know, she is. He's resigning. You know, he's done in uh, in November of 1974. So all of the conditions that were set up that made it difficult. Uh, to remove her, you know, in, in each particular month up until now, I feel like are, are gone. I feel like the only reason Schumer might leave her in office is that uh, because she, you know, bucked McConnell in the past and McConnell didn't fire her, you know, you, you, could, you could say from a defensive perspective, well, let's leave her in in case we lose the Senate and then she'll be McConnell's problem. Uh, but I feel like that that's that's not a good enough justification and Democrats ought to just uh, you know, make make their move now. How do you think? How do you think Republicans would respond? And what would you do if you were Schumer at this moment? Well, I think you're right about the politics of this because if you're able to say, and I think Schumer was probably worried about Republicans giving Republicans a talking point that hey, Democrats are so into breaking norms. Remember mm -hmm. Joe Biden running on bringing back normal um, that they fired, they they subverted the democratic process to pass their you know, big spending legislation. And I think Schumer was probably worried about giving that talking point to Republicans. But the alternative Democratic talking point, I think, is much stronger than the Republican talking point, which is, yeah, we did this to lower drug prices. So it's a right. very like clear kitchen table benefit. Um, although I, I, you know, so I agree with you on the politics of it. 
What is so parliamentarians though are obligated to discern when something in a reconciliation bill has policy implications or policy consequences that outweigh budgetary consequences. What's the alternative to McDonough? Are, are Democrats able then to find an alternative to McDonough that they sort of would be confident um, would just basically function as a rubber stamp in a future reconciliation bill? What you could do is you could uh, go back to some of uh, Reed's top legislative aides who are, you know, as as gifted in their understanding of uh, Senate parliamentary procedure as anybody on, on the planet and, you know, can can write out a memo that says, you know, here here is why uh, somebody might. And I, and I think they should give both sides like a parliamentarian should say, look, here, here is an argument for why this could be included in uh, reconciliation. Here's an argument for why this particular provision could not be, should not be considered as part of uh, reconciliation. And then ultimately it's up to the elected senators to look at that and decide. So if, you know, if Kamala Harris had ruled that this is in order, Republicans would have objected. Uh, They would have said, look, you're wrong. Uh, The parliamentarian, uh, you know, here's our reading of the parliamentarian parliamentarian issue at question. And then it would be a 50 vote threshold. And actually, I think in some of these, they would have won because they all 50 Republicans would have uh, you know, voted one way and somebody like Cinema or Manchin would have voted with them too, either out of kind of institutional support for the parliamentarian uh, or out of support for whatever corporation is behind whatever particular bill uh, is, is on the floor at that time. So you could, so that, but that is a more appropriate way from, from my perspective to handle this, to have a straight up or down vote on the Senate floor, because the, the American people, you know, it's, it's unbalanced and we can complain about the, the makeup of the Senate, but the American people do elect the, the senators to the United States Senate. They don't elect the parliamentarian. So, right. so have this, have the Senate uh, hash it out. So I think that's how you could do it. You say, look, the role of the parliamentarian is to advise. You know, her when she, when she said that you can't do the minimum wage through reconciliation, she issued a one-line ruling uh, you, that basically just said you can't do it, which was utterly absurd. It would be like you know going to the office of general counsel in the White House and saying, hey, you know, can we can we drone strike uh, an American citizen in in Yemen, uh, you know, under the AUMF because they're now working with Al Qaeda, right. and the general counsel comes back and says yes. It's like no, that's not that's not your job. Like you're not a judge. Your your job is to tell us what it, what are the relevant Supreme Court decisions, what are the relevant statutes, and give it give us kind of your analysis of this question, and then the people who are elected then make those decisions. It'll be interesting when the institutionalists of the Senate, um, I, I, there really isn't a younger generation of institutionalists um, on the left or the right, and it'll be interesting 10, 20 years from now when you don't have uh, people that have the sort of deference and reverence for uh, the, the kind of conventions um, that are there. Uh, going forward, that's something to watch out for, for sure. Yeah. You also probably have 65 Republicans by that point, so <laughs> no. it won't, won't it won't won't much matter. Anyway, looking forward though uh, to what's on your radar. I'll be up next. So Emily, what's on your radar? Well, something stood out to me in the Washington Post's story on the death of former Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, who was killed tragically in a car accident last week. The article was largely fair until the last paragraph. 
Here's what it said. A Donald Trump supporter, Walorski voted against impeaching the president in 2021 for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which resulted in the deaths of one police officer and four others and injured more than 100 law enforcement officers. She also voted against confirming Democrat Joe Biden's victories in Arizona and Pennsylvania in the 2020 presidential election. The end. The last words of an article about this woman's life were literally 2020 presidential election. You could take a lot away from that, or maybe nothing at all, but to me, it's just a really sad statement on the class divide that is wrecking American politics. We've been stuck in this miserable holding pattern since January 6th, airing all of our tribal grievances that have developed after Donald Trump announced his run back in 2015 through this prism of the Capitol riot. We can't get out of it. Why? Well, because the trust is gone and nobody is earning it back. Nobody in politics will earn it back if the media doesn't force them to. And the media won't force the left to do that because half of them are complete partisans and the other half are totally blind to their own biases. So a dishonest media just perpetuates this vicious cycle. If they're unfair, bad people will exploit that to sow distrust for their own gain. That's what Donald Trump did by conflating a rigged election with a stolen one. He lost, but he's not entirely wrong. The system is too easily influenced and swayed by money. Journalists who cast themselves as the nonpartisan heroes of our political story largely care only about money and politics when that money is being spent by the right. This is just one example of why trust in the media hit another historic low this year, and the pattern repeats itself because journalists refuse to deal seriously with their class blind spots. The author of the Washington Post article on Walorski's passing was Eugene Scott. I do not know what Scott's bank account looks like, but he has degrees from UNC and Harvard and works for one of the most prestigious media outlets in the world. More importantly, he lives and works in Washington, D.C., which is also where he was born. In Washington, D.C., the college graduation rate is 58.5%. The median household income is more than $86,000 a year. It is one of the bluest cities in the country. Now compare that with Indiana's second district, the one Walorski represented, the one she was born in and raised in. There, the college graduation rate is about 23%. The median household income is about $56,000 a year. Of course, the cost of living is much different, but that's a $30,000 gap with less than half half the college graduation rate. Donald Trump won Walorski's district by about 20 points. President Joe Biden won Washington, D.C. with 93% of the vote. These are basically different planets. In Coming Apart, Charles Murray showed how our new elites have, quote, increasingly sorted themselves into hyper-wealthy and hyper-elite zip codes that he calls the super zips. These super zips are based on levels of education and income. Speaking of the major cities around which those super zips tend to be clustered, Murray wrote, quote, because running major institutions in this country usually means living near one of these cities, it works out that the nation's power elite does in fact live in a world that is far more culturally rarefied and isolated than the world of the power elite in 1960. The Washington Post in 2013 found, quote, the largest collection of super zips were here in the D.C. area. Responding to Murray's research back in 2013, one Cornell sociologist told the Post, quote, we ought to worry about what this means for society when kids who are the most advantaged don't grow up with much experience or understanding of how the other 95% live, particularly the bottom half. I think you can reverse that too. And a decade later, we're living with the consequences every single day. 
We talk a lot about trust in media generally, but we don't often talk about the class divide. More educated people tend to have more trust in the media, as Gallup has found. And according to Pew's numbers, they have also found, quote, US adults with higher levels of education express greater trust in information from national news organizations than those with less education. Express, and they also, by the way, express greater trust in information from national news organizations than those with less education. So just about everyone who works in the Washington Post newsroom has a college education and likely spends most of their time working and socializing with other people who have college educations. They almost all live in urban areas and rarely socialize with people in rural areas as well. So when they cover national politics purportedly as neutral observers, they need to strenuously correct for the these biases, just as rural, lower-income people would have to do if they were writing about why Barnard grads living in Brooklyn thought Russia rigged voting machines for Donald Trump in 2016. But rather than correcting for their biases, these journalists lecture and condescend to everyone else about their own ignorance from these powerful platforms. The FBI raid this week pretty much ensured we're stuck in this Trump holding pattern for the foreseeable future, going back and forth on the election in January 6th like it's Groundhog Day. Jackie Walorski represented a much less affluent district than Washington, D.C. None of this is going to gloss, none of this is to gloss over the salience of race or religion or other factors, but it is to say when a Harvard educated Washington journalist and his editors feels it's necessary to include the Congresswoman's vote in certifying two states' electors in a report on her life and her tragic death. The implication here is that this is significant enough for inclusion. That implication is worth some of our consideration. Wolorski's constituents may not have as much money or many college degrees, but they are right about the media. They have no reason to trust the media that led them into Iraq and Afghanistan, hyped up candidates and institutions that failed them in 2008, botched COVID, and misled them time and again, nearly all in one partisan direction. So when the one politician willing to accurately say uh, the media is wrong about everything tells you they're wrong about the election, who the hell else are people going to trust? You basically have to spend hours doing research just to figure out whether a media report, one media report is credible and what the heck is actually happening. If you're not in a laptop class, you're not scrolling Twitter at work, you're probably busy. So this is obviously not about the paragraph at the end of Scott's story, not just about that. What he said was technically accurate, although I doubt he'd have the same paragraph at the end of an, a story like this for any of the House Democrats who voted against certifying electors from certain states back in 2016, and that's really the problem. Why is one decision more acceptable than the other? It really comes down to inequality. And downstream of income inequality, education inequality, is empathy inequality. Ryan, the paragraph in and of itself is, is not a totally big deal. I do think it represents this idea or this, this total almost misunderstanding that a lot of um, elite journalists have of why people come to these sorts of conclusions. And it does have to do with mistrust. And if you go out and, and talk to people um, that are outside some really powerful major cities, they talk about their distrust. And it's hard to say that they have any reason to, to not distrust all of these institutions. Um, and so it seems to me that we're on entirely the wrong course as to addressing this problem. Instead, it seems like we're just making the problem worse, pouring gasoline on the fire every single week. I mean, so I, I, I actually think that, yes, it was kind of untoward of 
the Washington Post to go into her vote on on that measure in in the in the memorial par- partly because her vote didn't matter like that you know it, she was she was part of a, a giant faction of Republicans um, who I think you know shamefully and and even more shamefully because it happened right after the sacking of the Capitol the riot in the Capitol uh, you know voted not to certify Biden's election but I don't I don't necessarily think this is a an example of a of a class distinction you know, I think it. It's not as if, you know, public, you know, public wills and public understandings of the, of of politics and of ideas and of reality are are just, you know, derived just from the ether. Like there are massive kind of coordinated propaganda campaigns on all sides that are, you know, influencing what people think about particular issues. And, you know, you know, she but more importantly, kind of Fox News and the entire kind of right wing ecosystem long after people like Bill Barr were saying this election was not stolen. Like, I've, we've looked into it, we've looked at it. He writes a letter, he's like, this election was, you know, there's some fraud here and there, like, like in every election, but, you know, Biden legitimately won this election. At that point, you know, the kind of entire right-wing ecosystem decided that they were going to continue pushing forward, you know, behind Trump and saying that, no, actually, Barr's wrong, the attorney general is wrong. They're actually Trump did win this. And so, yes, as a result of hearing that for months, then people in her district are going to think like, well, maybe there are questions, you know, to be, you know, you know, to be asked about this election, because from where they're getting their media, that's all that's all that they're hearing. Uh, So then to justify her position on this uh, by the fact that her constituents believe it when, you know, she's part of the propaganda campaign that made her constituents believe it. I I don't think that's a class question necessarily i think that's just a question of our of our of our kind of broken and and tribal politics so i think when maxine waters voted against certifying slates of electors from a handful of states in 2016 um do i think maxine waters was doing that cynically actually no i think maxine waters is just like on that level uh and and sort of actually shared sort of delusions about the slate of electors in that case and i do think in the house of representatives uh where we have this this whole group of of people who technically should be representative. Um, and that's why I, I have a hard time getting worked up about AOC or um, every little thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene tweets because they're supposed to be representative of their constituents and their people. I think actually a lot of the Republicans who voted against specific slates of electors, so Pennsylvania, Arizona, whatever problems they had, I think actually a lot of them believed that in the same way their constituents believed it. So as opposed to this sort of cynical feedback loop, I'm not saying they all believed it. But as opposed to it being a cynical feedback loop, it's more representative of the distrust uh, that people have that when, you know, Bill Barr is coming out and writing his reports, people are still poking holes in that and saying, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? To even the point where you have people who are serving in Congress um, who who see reasons to not vote to certify the electors. I think that just, to me, it speaks to how powerfully our institutions have lost credibility and lost trust that um, it, it's it's not just you know people whose jobs aren't in politics who who follow the news as much as they can and you know do it to be good citizens and good voters um, uh, might might not have every little bit of information they need but it's even it's even people in Congress um, the, to, to me I think it, it actually just speaks to the power of our institutional breakdown. Yeah, and I did think it was uh, wrong of the, the Democrats who voted against 
you know, particular electors in, in 2016. And I thought it was, you know, uh, absurd that they, you know, continued pushing this idea that, you know, but for, uh, you know, some Facebook ads from, from Russia, Clinton would have been the, you know, uh, legally lawfully elected president of the United States. Uh, and, and, and those are two kind of distinct things because it, w- when it came to voting against the electors, it was a pretty small number of people and there was no, there was no kind of mob, there was no mob riot that, that went along with it. It was just, you know, I don't know how uh, genuine it was, but it was, you know, seemed mostly to be pandering to to voters uh, back home, but without like a massive MSNBC, CNN, you know, push around, you know, taking down the you know, on on January 6, 2016, the the kind of electoral college count without that coordinated effort on over top of it, it 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 petered out and it was never an actual attempt. It was just we're going to we're going to cast we're going to cast these votes. Uh, the, the attempt to kind of undermine the president came later through the through the Russiagate stuff. So I think that's the distinction. You had the kind of air cover of, of Fox News and other other outlets leading into January 6, 2020, that then gave much more meaning to the votes that were cast, uh, you know, particularly, like, like I said, literally after, you know, there's broken glass and blood on the floor of the Capitol when they when they brought back up a lot of these votes and and people still cast their votes, which to me is a different character of, of vote at that point. I think it's because they really, I think if anything, it's because they really actually, many of them, not all of them, but many of them actually really truly believe it in the same way that I think Hillary Clinton really truly believes if it weren't for Vladimir Putin, right. she would be no, president she, of the sure United States. Yeah, yes. and, and she exactly. Would, she'd, pass a lie, she'd pass a lie detector test on that for sure. But 100%. I think also they, I don't think I think a lot of those Republicans really truly believed that they didn't have a choice, and that if they voted uh, their conscience, let's say they did not believe it, uh, that they would be ousted, like you know Herrera Butler was thrown out um, just this week, that they would lose a primary. Um, well, that was over, over impeachment, right? Vote. That was that was over right. The that impeachment was impeachment, question. right? Yeah. So anyway, um, but you know Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, when you look at the way both of them handled lost elections, I think it speaks to uh, some some really deep and profound uh, things going into trust and, and institutions on, on both sides. And the media seems to me always to be making it worse. But uh, I think we, we probably have to leave it there. Uh, we'll, we'll be back with more Rising right after this. A 42-year-old man was killed by police yesterday after officials say he tried to break into an FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio, after attempting to breach the office and exchanging gunfire with officers around 9 a.m. Ricky Schiffer was chased and cornered in a nearby cornfield where he was eventually shot and killed in the late afternoon, ending hours of failed negotiations. Police say Schiffer was wearing body armor and armed with both an AR-15-style rifle and a nail gun. NBC News has confirmed that Schiffer was present at the Capitol during the January 6th riots, and Truth Social posts by Schiffer say that he wanted a, quote, war after the raid on Mar-a-Lago. In the days leading up to his death, Schiffer encouraged his followers to arm themselves and, quote, shoot the FBI on sight. And Emily, this is, uh, you know, know, people uh, predicted that this would be the result of of some of the the rhetoric in response to uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago. I'm trying to imagine what what happened, you know, if something like this happened, actually, so if you remember back in, I forget what year it happened, but um, somebody who had had posted a bunch of things that made them, you know, sympathetic to uh, Black Lives Matter, they traveled up to uh, New York City, and as my memory is killed two police officers, 
um, I forget what, exactly what year that was. People can Google that up. And, and it really put it, it really dampened the, the movement. It really pushed, you know, it really gave people a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of second thoughts about some of the rhetoric and said, well, this is, this has gone way too far. This, this is not, this is absolutely not what we mean. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you know, how, how this is going to be, you know, received on the right. Uh, honestly, I think we're stuck in a, a pattern where this is all going to be a feature of our politics. And uh, we're, so you, you traveled up to New York, or I'm thinking of the Dallas shooting. Do you remember the Dallas shooting? There was that uh, one too. There was that one too. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you know, it, it did seem like for a while there was a lull in the rhetoric, and then 2020 comes and it's really mm -hmm. roaring back. And since then, I feel like there's been little introspection um, on the part of the media or the left. And that's not to say, like, of course, some of this has died down and there is another lull, I think, in the, the fervor. Uh, but I still think there's been little introspection and there's less introspection. I'm not just talking about BLM, um, I'm talking about both sides here, less introspection about. About inflammatory rhetoric because increasingly um, it, the sort of the beast has already been fed and we kind of talked about this in, in my radar a little bit to the point where now we have a whole class of powerful people who actually buy into a lot of this and aren't cynically um, just feeding you know the beast they're, they're actually sort of they really believe it um, and on top of that I think the appetite because this has been the conditioning has been so strong for so many years the appetite is there anyway um, and so what how do you you sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube um, at that point. I, I just don't see it happening. I don't, I don't see it happening. And I don't think Republicans would do it uh, when it comes to talking about you know stolen election, although I do think uh, Republicans talk less about the election allegedly being stolen. It was not stolen. Um, they talk more about it being rigged now. I do think that's a meaningful distinction. Uh, if you're talking about Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. pouring tons of money into races in you know different parts that it tended to be uh, or not tended to be, were clearly favorable to Democrats or regions that were clearly favorable to Democrats, a totally different conversation. I do think you've seen a shift from, uh, in some corners, not all corners, but I do think you've seen a shift from that to that. Um, but in general, I just think the, the rhetoric, the tendency of the rhetoric is just to go up and up and up. Um, and it doesn't matter if the, the party happens to be Republicans or Democrats. And I think somewhat separately, this also exposes some of the the way that this unfolds exposes some of the absurdity behind some of the rhetoric around the Second Amendment, because you hear a lot of people saying that the that the Second Amendment is there uh, to, to preserve liberty, to give people, you know, the this, you know, an, an armed people, the the ability to to maintain their own freedom. And it just flies in the face of. Yes, there are 300 plus million armed, you know, guns circulating among the among the, the private population here in the United States, but it's no match for the federal government. Like you're you're not you're not going to, you know, th this guy this guy ended up getting killed in a cornfield. Uh, you know, you're uh, even even a handful of armed people. Like you're you're not going to use use terrorism to overthrow the federal government. It's just it's just not going to happen. And and the kind of Propagandists affiliated with the NRA and some of the more extreme uh, elements of that of that movement, who who suggest to people, I think are are kind of pied pipering people to their to their deaths because that that's where this is going to lead. You're not gonna you're you're not gonna uh, occupy uh, an, an FBI field office in Ohio. It's just it's just not it's just not gonna happen. 
Certainly you're not, although I think the, a lot of that rhetoric is more if you're individually, um, and this is why they're, they, I mean, Vice reported on the, the growth of a black pro-gun organization. This is why I do think um, there's a, a serious argument to be made that as an individual, when you're targeted um, and you're on the defense, um, I think more of that rhetoric is, is, are, is aimed at that sort of side of the argument that like when as an individual you're targeted by law enforcement unjustly, um, you have your Second Amendment right to defend yourself. But th there there are certainly, and there have been, I mean, in the 90s and since the 90s, there have absolutely been um, sort of fringe activist militia type movements that have suggested um, they, they need to have firearms to outgun the feds, um, which is basically, as you say, Ryan, basically impossible. Although being right. on the right, I don't know, really know anybody uh, outside fringe groups who really believes that, uh, but there certainly are people right. on the fringes who do. Right, right, and, and it always ends in tears and in blood, um, like Ruby Ridge, Waco. You know, like that, them being armed, like did not did not did not stop the federal government. Anyway, that's it's kind of a, that's a separate question. Um, but it, yeah, these are these are these are scary times that that uh, we're entering into. Uh, and, you know, I, it, it seemed like uh, Merrick Garland's, uh, you know, public statement yesterday was not, not necessarily a response to this particular incident, but, but to, you know, a lot of not, not just kind of uh, pol political challenges being made to the FBI, but, you know, he said that there were enormous numbers of threats to FBI agents uh, around the country. So I think you're right. This is, this is going to be a part of our politics going forward. Yeah, and I, again, like it, I think it's important also to recognize that it's it's happening to police departments, it's happening to the FBI, and it's a, just going to be. I, I feel like, sadly, Ryan, you and I are going to have conversations um, like where we do blocks on things like this almost weekly, probably into the future, uh, because I, I just think it's, it's going to become a feature that violence, um, in a way that it hasn't, or on a scale that it hasn't in the past, political violence is going to become um, a, a feature, a, a bigger feature of. Of our sort of political landscape than it has been. Um, people like to talk about 1968. I think we've, you know, we, we thankfully haven't had the level of assassinations that we saw in the 60s. Um, but I, I do feel like in terms of the heated rhetoric and the heated demonstrations, protests, riots, we've sort of cruised past that. And I, I'm curious from your perspective, how long can kind of the, the, the more extreme Republican right maintain this this weird contradiction where you have, uh, you know, absolute unquestioning vocal support for local police, uh, but then you know you know absolute unquestioning kind of criticism of of the FBI. Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, kind of using using the phrase defund, uh, you know, being the kind of you know emblematic response to that. At, at what point is that just too much of a contradiction uh, to maintain? Well, did you see the uh, clip from Fox and Friends yesterday where Steve Ducey pressed Steve Scalise and said, what happened mm -hmm. to Back the Blue? He asked Steve Scalise, what happened to Back the Blue? Um, and Steve Scalise, I think, had a, a pretty decent answer to that question. He said, you know, we, the Republican Party is strong supporters of law enforcement, but uh, the FBI obviously has demonstrated this, this intolerable pattern of corruption, et cetera, et cetera. So is it a, an important distinction? Yes. Is it politically easy from a messaging perspective? I don't know if it's that difficult, but it's definitely 
you're splitting hairs. Um, and, and I think the question, Ryan, to your point, is going to be where are those incentives in terms of uh, winning voters, especially we know both parties right now are battling hard for suburban voters, for educated suburban women. Um, you know, what what is the incentive? What is the where incentives are there for how they talk about law enforcement? Um, and that, to me, is probably one of the things that could cause a shift or, or could cause a dampening in the rhetoric. Uh, but I don't know. It, it's hard to imagine going forward. It's just tough to say. Yeah, Republicans ran a ton of their uh, House campaigns just around the defund the police, trying to yoke defund the police around every kind of swing district uh, Democrat. And, and that probably is made much more difficult if you're just steadily undermining the federal federal police. But maybe not. I mean, maybe people can, uh, you know, hold hold both of these thoughts and tension in, in their heads indefinitely. But I, it, it seems hard to me to do that. Yeah, it, that's a super interesting trend to watch for, definitely in this midterm cycle, maybe in the presidential cycle, too. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that one. And we'll have more Rising right after this. We've got some breaking news this morning. The virus that causes polio has been found in New York City's wastewater. Weeks after a case of polio was found in Rockland County, health officials said the presence of the polio virus suggests wider spread of the virus among the unvaccinated. This comes just after the CDC loosened its COVID-19 guidelines on Thursday. The new guidance lifts the requirement to quarantine if exposed to the virus, de-emphasizes screening people with no symptoms, and updates COVID-19 protocols in schools. Emily, do you know how, how common it is to be vaccinated for polio? Like, were we vaccinated as kids for I have polio? Not. Are kids today vaccinated uh, I don't know. You should, are your kids yeah. vaccinated for polio? I don't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, they they get the the battery of vaccines that they're that the uh, you know that the doctor gives to them, I, but I don't remember polio being in there. I don't know. Maybe the producers know um, how common it is because polio, uh, you know, is is an is an awfully awfully scary thing. That one of those things that we thought was in the past, though you see, you know, you you still continue to meet people today who who lived with it. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell famously had yes. polio as a child and, and uh, you know, still suffers, you know, some of the ramifications of that to this to this day. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess we thought we had it beaten. And then, um, you know, it, 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 one thing it does show is the the, the strength and the, uh, the cleverness of these viruses that, you know, that their, their ability to, to hang around until. Uh, they can they can get another beachhead. Yeah, and the the good people in our ear just uh, let us know that the answer to your question it's ninety three percent of Americans are vaccinated for polio, okay. and the theme of today's episode unintentionally has been I think uh, the decline of institutional trust, and it's amazing. I, I actually don't think we've really understood or grappled with how far ranging the consequences are going to be of what happened with. COVID and with vaccines um, and with the sort of shifting uh, talking points from the medical establishment and the political establishment about what they actually did, um, what their value actually is um, versus what, you know, they, they were saying initially, whether it was with face masks, whether it was, I, I mean, like they, they may seem like small things to people in the medical establishment, um, but they're actually really big to people who are looking for life-saving information um, who are not 
professional doctors um, or professional politicians and uh, rely on them to tell us all. I mean, we're not doctors by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Uh, we didn't even know what the polio vaccination rate was. But uh, right. you, know, you, you have to rely on the professionals uh, to trust them. And so I, I think this is one going to be, this is a, an early symptom um, in a, a long sort of uh, period post-COVID. This is, this is an early but serious symptom of the decline in trust. Uh, because I think a lot of people in the way the vaccine was talked about originally, the COVID vaccine, really thought that it was something very similar to the, the polio vaccine and were led to believe that it was something similar right. to the polio vaccine. And when you stand back and you look around and you're like, well, if I was told with such confidence and certainty one thing about this vaccine, I'm going to do a whole lot more research um, on this other one uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait and do a whole lot more research on the other one because the people I was trusting to tell me, um, you failed me on this one count and my children's lives mean a whole lot to me and I need to think about this. Right. Yeah. And I think from the beginning, people, you know, the public health authorities should have been a little bit more modest and circumspect when they talked about uh, the vaccine. And we had a bunch of arguments here with Kim back back during Delta, where, you know, she would say it doesn't stop the spread. And, you know, a, a lot, you know, a lot of people would say, no, it does stop the spread. But no, it, it didn't stop the spread, but it did slow the spread. And so there was there was no willingness on the part of kind of the vaccines advocates to acknowledge some of the criticism. So you could say, you're right, it doesn't stop it, but it does slow it. And it slows it because you're, you know, ten, say 10 times less likely to get Delta. Now, in the case of the, the current vaccine against this new Omicron BA5, whatever it is, might not even be, might not even be slowing it. And it's, it, it, it's important for, I think, people to be able to make those concessions to people, because this, this is, this isn't, these are, these, we're, our understanding of this is evolving. And if you just dig in, and don't look at new data coming in. Don't look at new evidence. Don't don't acknowledge good faith, legitimate criticisms, but but then counter with what what benefits you still see for it. Then you're going to end up losing credibility rather than saying, look, no, this isn't the polio vaccine, which is going to eradicate or mostly eradicate polio. Uh, but here are the here are the benefits for it. Here are the risks for it. You make your decision. And they did. We didn't we didn't do it that way. No, and it, we're just emerging from a news cycle in which there's a story that should have been front and center, not because of dunking on anyone or doing the I told you so thing, but because it's actually how you correct our, our institutions that handled this poorly. And that would be Anthony Fauci and Joe Biden vaccinated multiple times, boosted getting COVID and juxtaposing it with the clips. This was only a story in conservative media of Joe Biden repeatedly calling this pandemic of the unvaccinated, saying if you if you get your vaccine, you know, you're not going to spread it. You're not going to get it, et cetera, et cetera. All of these quotes that um, at the time they actually should have known better um, from saying with such confidence and such authority. And if you juxtapose that with what happened, it's really like the, the big story there is that people were paying attention. The American people were paying attention to that. And they didn't take COVID lightly until um, they started a, a chunk of the American public was like, well, well, what is actually going on? What's actually happening with this? Um, it, because so many things that were said with such confidence and arrogance turned out not to be true 
were turned out to be misleading at best. Um, and, and that's a huge story because people do pay attention. They know exactly what Joe Biden was saying on the campaign trail. They know exactly what Dr. Fauci was saying in the early days of the pandemic and the early days of that vaccine. And they know exactly what happened. And that is a trust crisis. And the media is paying so little attention to it because they're terrified of getting on the wrong side of uh, censors, of, of getting on the wrong side of the government um, that can you know, activate or, or can make complaints about what should be allowed on TV, what should be allowed to question, what you should be allowed to say, and being called an anti-vaxxer because that was such a fervor um, and it's such a bad way to get labeled. You, know, you, you get labeled as that. You, you can't you know, talk about anything, even if you're raising uh, legitimate questions and you're pro-vaccine. It literally doesn't matter. So you, you get this blackout in the media, but it's not a blackout with the public. The public understands what happened. And if the media shines no light on it, these institutions basically have no incentive to fix what went wrong. And, and I hope that people who are following this will, 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 will understand that the polio vaccine has been you know, thoroughly tested yeah. and is, is actually you know, a safe and effective vaccine. And so I think for a lot of people, you know, the, the phrases safe and effective have become kind of punchlines, um, you know, for, for a lot of for a lot of viewers of this show, for sure. Uh, but this one actually is. And if if you're you know, if you have a young kid who hasn't been vaccinated yet or you know, you're not sure, you should look look into it, call it, call your pediatrician. Like this is something you do want. You absolutely want to do. You do not want your kid. You don't you yourself do not want to get polio. Yeah. Well, and it's not just, by the way, it's not just Democrats who were misleading the public about the vaccine. Uh, it's it's not just pharma that was misleading the public about the vaccine. It was basically the entire political establishment, um, left and right. And Republicans, I think, were probably better than Democrats about asking some serious questions um, about COVID. Rand Paul is one really good example. Uh, Thomas Massey, like they, they were better asking responsible questions, but they got treated as anti-vax idiots by the media, which meant pretty much nobody um, on the left wanted to touch it. And so it just turned into a right-wing conspiracy theory when, in fact, there were very legitimate questions to be asked. And we are now reaping the consequences, and we will continue to reap the consequences of this just complete uh, lapse, of, lapse of judgment, lapse of competence in both the media, the medical establishment, and the political establishment on this question. Um, and, and the consequences aren't just going to be QAnon. The consequences are going to be um, you know, people's health and people's lives, and uh, it's just a big failure all around. But I, right, and by all around, I, I, I want to make sure we're um, clear, though, that I don't think that the vaccine skeptic side here has clean hands either, because just as the kind of pro-vaccine side was being kind of black and white about what about what the data was showing, the, the vaccine skeptic side or the or, or leaning into the anti, anti-vaccine side was also you know, refusing to acknowledge the, the genuine benefits, the upsides of of the vaccine, particularly against Alpha and particularly against Delta and against Omicron when it came to, you know, the elderly. That's not the case for, for all people, um, but, you know, who were vaccine skeptics, but certainly a lot of them would, you know, if, if you only listened to them, you would think that there was absolutely no upside to it, that there, that there was no benefit to it, which also was not true. 
And I feel like that's what happens when uh, you're attacked as an anti-vaxxer and you're attacked for asking questions. People dig deeper into their trenches. Um, and so it's just a totally lack of productive. Um, it, it just becomes a complete misuse of our resources. It becomes a completely unconstructive exercise um, when you know, the media is so sensitive um, about not not a so sensitive about like the the allowing for these boundaries of acceptable conversation and not being skeptics, which journalists are supposed to be skeptical of our establishment, um, and and when you just sort of start taking the or holding the line, um, you, you end up really pushing people further and further into their trenches, and it's not helpful for anybody. The information gets worse, um, right. and the politics get worse. Right, because there are. There is actual information that people need, and the polio situation is is a perfect example of it. Yeah. Like that. Well, like, get it. And, and yeah, no, absolutely, it is a really perfect example. We'll be back with more rising right after this. Well, earlier this morning, Politico magazine dropped a little bit of a morsel from a new book out by Ali Vitali, NBC News correspondent, that looks back on the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. And it includes a quote from Elizabeth Warren, where she said, this is back again in 2020, everyone comes up to me and says, quote, I would vote for you if you had a penis. Now, this obviously has gone viral on Twitter this morning uh, because the quote is where, it's actually where Vitaly ends this excerpt of her new book, which is called Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House. Um, this, they, she used it to end the excerpt that Politico magazine published from that book. Uh, so it's sort of a dramatic conclusion there. Let me read it again. Elizabeth Warren claims, everyone comes up to me and says, I would vote for you if you had a penis. Ryan, do you believe uh, Elizabeth Warren said this? And if she did say it, which I'm sure she, she did, because Ali Vitali sounds like she had it recorded, um, is, is she telling the truth? <laughs> I'm, I have no reason to think she didn't say that. Uh, that's Sure. I think that's, if that Vitali says she said that, then I'll, I'll go with that. Does everyone come up to her and say that? I think I find that extremely hard to believe. Could some people... You know, is it possible that anybody said that ever? I, uh, maybe somebody said it once. Uh, it just seems like a very strange thing to say to a stranger you know, you're, you, that you walk up to. Uh, it's a little overly familiar, particularly, you know, she she was famous in the 2020 campaign for doing those selfie lines. So she did indeed have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands uh, of, of personal interactions with people. So, you know, probably more than 100,000. I think the number's out there somewhere because the selfies, the selfies are out there. At, at rallies, at her rallies, you would, she'd be there for hours afterwards taking these selfies. So, yes, she had many, many conversations with people. Did anybody say that? Maybe. I, more likely, you, you would have uh, some people saying to her, I'd vote for you if you're a man. I could see that as a more likely thing that you'd say to a stranger that you're about to take a selfie with. Um, but also, you know, being, you know, on the on the one hand, yes, uh, you know, being being a woman, uh, you know, is seen by some, uh, you know, voters who consider themselves pundits to be a detraction. It's seen by others as as a boost. You know, in 2018, the the not the kind of median female candidate outperformed the median male candidate in Democratic primaries by a by a couple of points. And so I think attitudes around that are 
changing a little bit. But certainly, I think those are people who watched Hillary lose in 2016, Democratic voters, and thought that she lost because she was a woman and are kind of holding, you know, folding that into 2020. Well, yeah, and this is like, what do this you is think? A... You, you believe it? Well, no, because she's saying, like, she, she, her quote is exactly, everyone comes up to me and says. So obviously she's not implying that literally everybody comes up to her and says that, but she's implying that it happens on some sort of mass scale, that people are coming up to her and saying, either directly I'd vote for you if, I, if you had a penis, or I'd vote for you if you were a man, which on its face is just flatly absurd and honestly a smear against voters because they elected Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, in the primary just four years earlier. They voted for a woman. And on top of that, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. So it's even beyond just Democratic primary voters. The country as a whole elected a woman in the popular vote. Um, and I think there's a tendency to like dismiss claims like this as just like silly, um, you know, the, the bitter uh, the bitter sentiments of a losing candidate. I, and it is that. But it, I really take it seriously as a smear against voters because I, I, I really like it hurt excuse if her if this is her excuse is uh blaming misogyny and sexism in some significant way of course there's always going to be misogyny and sexism and we you know continue to uh you know hopefully trend in a direction where it's a lower lower effect on everyday life of course it's always going to exist but if you're blaming it for losing a primary that a woman won four years ahead of you, that is a smear on voters, and you are using it as an excuse to salvage your credibility as a failed politician who ran for president. And another thing this article does um, is rehash the Bernie-Elizabeth Warren feud. It was similar to how Hillary Clinton invoked and flirted with this invocation of sexism, um, and, and outright in some cases, I think was outright sexist against Bernie bros and men in her ability to smear them or her interest in smearing them as sexist, um, it gets into some of that as well. And it's easy to forget how big a part that was of the 2020 primary, too. It was a similar kind of uh, battle lines from 2016. It was huge. You know, people remember it was right before the final Iowa debate. Uh, the, it looks like the Warren camp, camp kind of leaked to uh, CNN that, that Sanders had said that she couldn't win because she was a woman. Sanders flatly denied having having said that. Um, you know, more what more likely he may have said something like Trump is going to you know use misogyny against you or something like that, which is just you know common sense. Of course, of course he's going to do that. Uh, and then it became a, a big it became a big issue in the debate and. You know, the Sanders campaign saw its its numbers with women, you know, dip significant significantly in the in the two weeks then leading into the Iowa caucuses, which then um, you know narrowed the race to be close enough to allow Pete Buttigieg to do that bizarre thing, the night of the caucuses where he just claimed victory even though uh, the 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 voting machines uh, that were actually linked to people in his campaign had had completely crashed, uh, and so it did it did have a, you know a real impact on on the way the race uh, unfolded, though uh, the the massive consolidation ahead of S South Carolina, you know, with, with you know, Obama, Obama Clyburn, B Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, every MS and MSNBC dumping kind of a billion dollars in, in free media toward Biden, you know, probably doesn't, pr you know, probably is able to wipe out even a, even a bigger win in Iowa by Bernie Sanders. But yeah, this is, this, that was, people forget how, what a big part that played in the primary.
And you know, the, the uh, recurring theme is that it's all about power. And when you're weaponizing um, false charges of identity politics for the sake of your own political part, for your own political power as a, a powerful uh, member of the political establishment of the American elite, when you weaponize that, it actually has a real effect on the way people see their country. It has a real effect on the way people see their neighbors and their culture. Um, and as this, these things are sort of cynically weaponized by powerful people for the sake of their own power, uh, uh, it really changes the world. It really changes the country, and and not for the better. And it does a disservice to uh, you know the the uh, crusade to actually address real misogyny um, and and real sexism and you know real uh, real racism, real xenophobia, real anything. Uh, when you continue to weaponize it in just silly ways uh, as a politician. Yeah, and and to the extent that being a woman is a disadvantage in a Democratic primary, it's it's not because Democratic primary voters are themselves sexist, but it's because they're projecting a view onto the general uh, voting population that being a woman will then be a handicap in a general election. uh, And therefore, uh, we have to not nominate a a woman uh, so so that the uh, these other sexist people you know, won't won't then vote against that woman, and and some and a, and a decent number of Democratic primary voters did draw that conclusion. You know, from uh, the 2016 election, yes, they did not. Yes, they did nominate a woman, but then they felt like the the country wasn't ready to elect a, a woman and and vote and nominated and, and elected uh, Trump instead. And so you, you end up then behaving in a sexist way uh, in in order to stop other people from behaving in a sexist way. And, and you're, right, you're right, what it does then is it, 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 it then fuels the very thing that you're trying to subvert. Totally, vicious cycle. And uh, you know, Hillary Clinton reportedly said, if you remember, I know you remember the, the Bernie Warren hot mic moment from the primaries. Clinton said, I believed her, Warren, because I know Sanders and I know the kind of things that he says about women and to women, she told me. Uh, this is from Ali Vitali. Her distaste for her 2016 opponent, still palpable. Again, like that is not just that is a smear against Bernie Sanders, <laughs> and it's no surprise coming from Hillary Clinton. Um, but to your point, Ryan, Hillary Clinton was plainly a bad candidate, and uh, to scapegoat um, people like Bernie Sanders, who have have, have supported women for his entire career, uh, basically, um, you know, I'm a conservative. It's not like I'm a big lover of Bernie Sanders. And, uh, I can say that it's true about him, um, but to, to scapegoat either the American people or you know other politicians, um, it's just doing such a disservice to the Democratic Party, who has basically zero constructive introspection about their own flaws. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and like you said, it just it then it then just fuels it even more. But yes, Hillary Clinton's um, disdain for Bernie Sanders uh, probably even outpaces her her disdain for Vladimir Putin. Like it's, <laughs> it's, 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 that, it's that deep. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be curious, you know, if we can ever get her on the show, we could just ask her, like, who do you hate more, Bernie Sanders <laughs> or Putin? And I think that uh, there would be a pause as she pondered that, that question. Yeah. I don't, oh. be any, I don't think it'd be any easy answer. You know, how do you, how do you compare, you know, two infinite levels of hatred? Well, you know, the good thing about Vladimir Putin from Hillary Clinton's perspective is that he uh, gives her an excuse to do some favors to her friends in the defense industry <laughs> to, right. to spend some money um, and to uh, gain some control uh, in different parts of the world. So uh, maybe it is truly a very close call for her. <laughs> Might be. Might be. <laughs>
<laughs> well, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen. Well, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to your podcasts. That does it for us on this rising, this edition of Rising Fridays. Uh, Ryan, we're excited to have you back here in D.C., although I know you're probably enjoying being out of the humidity because uh, this week was pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll, be, I'll be back very soon. Uh, look, looking forward to Coming back to coming back to DC and being in the studio, uh, but for now, the, I think that the Marlboro Music Festival is this weekend in Vermont. So if anybody's going to that, um, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to check it out. I've heard it's great, uh, but otherwise, everybody else have a have a great weekend. Ryan will be at the drum circle. See you there. <laughs> See you next week, everyone.